one, Mark. Welcome back to the Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today we've got something incredibly unusual and one that is so exciting uh, that Paul McNulty's heart is literally beating out of his chest and he promises to have some quite staggering revelations today. And I'm not saying that with any sort of an unnecessary hyperbole or anything like that. <laughs> you are. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think this is really something. Paul, I'm just going to hand straight over to you, mate. Oh, well, thanks for the perhaps excessive build-up. <laughs> All right. What we're looking at today, after doing a few uh, um, extracurricular activities, we're, we're going right back to the 10cc mother load um, today. We're looking at two songs in particular, which... Uh, may not appear to have much in common, and, and indeed they don't. It's just the fact that these two songs, we have some very exciting uh, mixes of unheard up until now. Um, the two songs are People in Love and 24 Hours. Mm. Now, we'll come to 24 Hours later, but we'll we'll look at People in Love. Just a little bit about what you're going to hear. Uh, unlike some of the other podcasts, we don't as yet have access to the multi-tracks. And when I talk about People in Love, we're talking about the original recording by the foursome, the very final recording that uh, Kev, Lowell, Eric and Graham made um, in August 1976, we believe. And this is, a, what, a few weeks after they did the Natural Wonder ad? Yeah, four or five weeks after they did that ad. So it's right around the same time. It's obviously... Uh, 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 perhaps the key recording in in the latter part of 10CC's career because it literally broke the band up and we'll delve into that uh, as we go. But just talking about the source of this recording, the multi-track exists. Um, we're not exactly sure of the ownership, but we believe that one day we will be able to hear the multi-track. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. What we have are some mixes experimental mixes that were made 20 plus years ago uh, from direct from the multi-track which give us a really good representation of the different elements on the track how it evolved and how in the case of people in love it's different from the version that was re-recorded for deceptive bends just a few weeks after this version we believe or a couple of months no more than that This version, um, or a, a version of this um, four-man 10cc, People in Love, was released as Voodoo Boogie mm. on, what was it, one of those, Tenology, was it yes, Tenology? Yes, it was, it was the, the big box set from a few years back, ten years ago, I think. Yeah, it's a funny old mix. It seems to be two separate bits bolted together and the sound quality's 
rather odd. Yes, and it's. I think it's probably off a cassette, but from what to my ears anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, you know, thanks to Dave Jarvis, uh, bless him, uh, for, for retrieving that. But but these mixes are in way way better quality, aren't they? Direct from the from the multi track. They are, but it says I'm looking at the multi track here. It says Voodoo Boogie in brackets on the multi-track, wow. along with People in Love. So I, wonder, I wonder who christened it that. Uh, not Eric or Graham, I shouldn't <laughs> think. And voodoo, I mean, how apt. Yes. There's not much boogieing going on either. <laughs> <laughs> It is. I mean, maybe it comes back to that thing. Um, I mean, Graham says this, but not just him, and it's a well-known thing. If the song has is has a strong foundation, if it's a great song, you can do virtually anything with it and it will be improved. If it doesn't have a strong foundation, then it doesn't matter what you try and... And, and shovel on the top, it, it, won't, it won't improve it. And maybe this is an example of that. Having said that, hearing the, f the the four guys work on it is a bit of a revelation and that they they almost rest it back into something which is worth having but ultimately they don't uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll look in, in a short while about th those overdubs and what they what they try to do to this basic track to to, to make it um to make it special and yeah. and, and they fail So this is this is ex exciting stuff. Hmm. Um, it certainly is, and and for me, just to kind of add to what you've just said, Paul. For me, one of the the really exciting things about these rough mixes, and they are rough mixes. I think they were kind of reeled off in 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 rather a hurry hmm. at the time. Uh, but for me, the fascinating thing is that each individual member of Ten CC is is shown in extreme detail, operating in their own very individual way. Um, and whether we think any of those individual parts work together as a whole, we'll, we'll let you be the judge. But for me, it's been a kind of a, a magnifying glass into a very personal musical experiment on, it, on each of the four individuals' parts. Do you think that's fair, Paul? Yes, I think so. Um, People in Love has lots of parallels with I'm Not in Love, but whereas uh, the latter was a stunning success, this was a, a catastrophic failure. There's, there's, I think they are the bare facts, but there's a lot more to unpick. What I never realised, I think, was how much of a, a great song People in Love could have been and, and nearly was. Let me try and explain that. The version on Deceptive Bends has always left me a bit cold. It's very well recorded by Graham and Eric, and it, of course, has a uh, an excellent drum performance by Paul Burgess, one mm. of his first, and uh, a string arrangement by Del Newman. It, uh, unlike it, the string arrangement on Feel the Benefit, it's, it's relatively conventional, and I don't know whether it adds that much, but that in turn may have been because that track isn't that inspiring. Mm. What really grabbed me about listening to these sessions um, was how much having Kev and or Lol, and we'll talk about that in more detail, 
involved in the recording process added to this version. There's a uh, intangible magic, and I don't think that's too strong a word, mm-hmm. that I hear here that doesn't exist in the Deceptive Bends version. And of course, we know that this that, um, this track was um, recorded amongst uh, amidst quite a tense atmosphere, uh, and that the end result was that Kevin and Lowell just didn't like what they'd done, and it, it was the catalyst that decided uh, that decided for them that they wanted to leave the band. So it's a, uh, and yet despite that, they're giving I think 100% during the recording, and that's an interesting dichotomy which we'll attempt to explore and, and now. And some extraordinary creativity and workload, uh, particularly. Uh, as we'll hear from from what Lol contributed to this. Shall we dive in? Let's. So there we have. uh, You can hear just the early bars of what seems to my ears to be the basic track that was put down. What are you hearing on this, Paul? Uh, I'm hearing Kevin playing drums, Eric on Rhodes, and Graham, I think, on guitar. Yes. I don't hear a role for LOL. No. Shortly, we hear Graham, who I think does the counting, as per normal it would seem, uh, refer to what I thought was Mark, in the in the control room, but is is actually Mart, isn't it? Martin Lawrence. That's correct. Um, it's a little difficult um, b- because of the way these mixes are done. It's sometimes difficult to hear the evolution of the track. But we do have the tape box, and what we have on the tape box is four takes, of which the fourth was the best and used as the master and in their normal customary customary fashion they then overdub more instruments on that take one is a breakdown and take two and three are complete and take four is, is the one that they went with i think this has some beautiful roads playing by eric i agree um in fact there's a, a fabulous little lick that um, I'm currently obsessive, <laughs> obsessing over, and we'll, we'll isolate this for you, that appears in take three, but they don't actually use it in the finished take. And I don't think it's an accident, because Eric, I think I can hear him playing exactly the same thing twice in the song during, during the guitar solo. Lots of great elements here. Ke- I think the key thing is Kevin's drumming. Mm. Um, it's gorgeously gentle and soft and subtle, isn't it? Yeah, it's propulsive where it needs to be. There's little pushes, accents. Um, it's quite powerful for what is, you know, quite a gentle song. And I don't. Paul Burgess did a, a, an absolutely fine and professional job, but I was. Now, the difference to hear Kevin drumming on this track is is quite interesting, particularly when, as far as we know, he, 
he hated the thing mm. uh, or he hated the finished result. exposition um, and we did cover this way back on episode five the road to consequences um, Ten CC um, were under pressure to come up with a single to keep them in the public eye mm. and this is what they were attempting to do here and looking at the songs that were around well Kevin Lowell didn't have anything because they were already hungry to get into consequences and they were pouring all their energy into that mm. we know that uh, eric and graham had at least three songs uh, good morning judge which uh, was played at nebworth of course prior to the split but was apparently never seriously considered as a as a as a single which is odd perhaps um this people in love and the things we do for love um as far as we know uh Kev and Lowell disliked the things we do for love even more than they disliked people in love. It sounded like they were prepared to go with this as some kind of compromise, which is surprising because yeah, I think I'm, you'll agree... I'm with them on people in love, Paul, if I'm completely frank, but I'm completely against them on things we do for love. Yeah. It's a, a true classic. It's a true classic, although it was originally much slower and bluesier. So, And it, I don't think, or it may not have had Graham's introduction... Um, which is used as part in the middle eight, so maybe it sounded different. But yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that Things We Do For Love is a better song than People In Love. Yeah. But for whatever reason, this was the compromise choice they went with. Sure. You can really hear, even on, on, this, on this basic version, Paul, you can really hear, to my ears anyway, Graham trying to wring interesting colours from this song. Um, that There's quite a lot of interesting chord changes from sort of major to minor or um, major to augmented even do I hear things like that And so I think Graham's trying really, really hard to make something interesting happen here. But maybe, you mentioned uh, Del Newman earlier on, maybe the fact that his string parts don't sound that inspired on this track, the chords here don't sound that inspired either. And, and I think the basic skeleton of the song, perhaps, dare I say it, a sort of a formulaic attempt for Eric to come up with, with that winning hit formula again. I don't. I just don't think the song is strong enough to um, to be improved particularly by Graham's genius with chords. Am I being unfair? Do you think? No. There's maybe there's something not quite right about the song. It it it's probably Eric's baby, um, but there are certain touches which are un, undoubtedly Graham. He, I mean, he talked to us about this. The second chord 
is an, a nice unusual one. I think it's a sixth in the bass. Mm. He showed us that chord, which yes. also occurs in Mandy. Um, he also said, though, that there was a part of the song which he realised later he simply didn't like and wished he hadn't let through the quality control department. And I think he's probably referring to the, the bits with the guitar solos. Um, I mean, without going into too much musical theory for once, it is a relatively conventional song. It's kind of made up of different conventional bits strung together, really. There's quite a lot of turnarounds mm. with embellishments. And interestingly, it bears some relationship to Natural Wonder, which is also based on yeah, a, yeah. a sort of conventional turnaround sequence. So may, maybe one begat part of the other, I don't know. Um, it certainly doesn't have the sort of melodic majesty of something like Unmandy Fly Me or the, you know, already there, Things We Do For Love. Yeah, but everything feels a bit pedestrian with this track. Um, and not just the finished version, which I find really uncomfortably bland. Graham described it to us as simpering, didn't he? Yes. That's one of his favourite uh, adjectives. Yeah. And and he's right. He, he's right. And this version, as we'll hear shortly, folks, in, from some of the other mixes, has got a lot more going for it. Uh, and I, I echo what Paul said about just the joy of hearing Kevin's drumming on this. He he talks through the drum kit, and it's just beautiful. <laughs> Paul, you had some interesting things to say, didn't you, about uh, the structure of the song and Eric's uh, contribution? Yeah, so far we've heard the basic track, uh, just instrumental work. Um, they added a few more conventional overdubs, acoustic guitar and Graham's bass guitar. And then it sounds like they went on to Eric's lead vocal and harmony vocal. Um, and things got pretty crazy after that but the, before we get on to that bit um, we'll hear some of Eric's singing his singing is sublime on, on this track just yeah. I think just like all around this period when he was at, at his absolute vocal peak what is interesting though it's a tone higher than the version that was released on Deceptive Bends is it? yes um, the Deceptive Bends version starts in the key of C and then it goes up a key to D. Well, this version starts in D and goes up to E, which is extremely high. Although, yeah, although Eric is perfectly capable of pulling that off with a lovely, sweet but commanding tone. The other fascinating thing about this early version is that it doesn't stay up in that key. It goes back down again at the start of the second guitar solo, mm. which gives it... A, a very unusual flavour and when they may have changed that because the instrumental uh, version of that sounds great but when the vocal is added when it comes back down to that original key it sounds a bit unusual Tell us it's time to go 
Yeah, it's a bit of a truck driver's gear change for me. It's kind of it's almost like halted in its tracks. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing. Um, what it does mean, of course, is that the the two guitar solos are actually you know played in in the same key. It's it, it's odd. Um, the structure of the song is almost identical. I've done an A B comparison between the Deceptive Benz version and this version. Great. There's 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 one um, part early on in the verse where they drop a bar in our version here. Okay. It um, just makes it move a little bit quicker. Again, it's more conventional to to have that phrase as eight bars rather than seven. That's what they do on Deceptive Bends. They, by then, they're, they're going much more mainstream, I think. They've taken all the experimental elements out of the track and they've paired it back. Look at the smile. Another thing I noticed was that, and this isn't both versions on on both Deceptive Bends and, and our version here are the same, but um, this is a device that Eric uses elsewhere. During When the verse is reprised for the last time, he kind of telescopes it in, he cuts a bit of the verse out, exactly the same device he uses in For You and I. Okay. When they come to that last verse of For You and I, they, they cut a bit out just to... I guess the feeling is you've already heard this before compositionally it just moves it mm. you know it avoids repetition I thought that was interesting yeah yeah must be Eric's call that I think um, so what we have at this stage is um, a good track very well played we don't I don't as yet hear any role for lol um, up to this point no it, it, it's like he wasn't part of the, the basic tracking sessions at all didn't seem to be no and it may have been he uh, was the you know objected to the the track more than Kevin. I guess <laughs> I guess we'll probably never know. It was, um, but what happened next was that apparently the four of them went off and came up with individual elements all by themselves mm. and 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 shoved them into the track. And this is a thing which, of course, worked brilliantly or something very similar worked brilliantly in I'm Not In Love, where Kevin Lowell's deconstruction of the original track made it incredible. Here, well, you'll hear for yourself. <laughs> it, it's Quite does. otherworldly, actually, what's it, what you're about to hear on this one. Um, does the track sheet, Paul, give us any clues as to how they've, they've split up the track? What have we got there? We've got a photocopy, haven't we, there? Yeah, we're looking at the original... Uh, multi-track which has 24 tracks I don't think that the most experimental elements are actually on here um, another uh, that the cover of the tape box tell talks about loops and guitar solo clarinet um, which we think <laughs> and and you, and well you'll hear that it, it's it's almost certainly lol solo that sounds clarinetish <laughs> and I don't know whether they would have been added on a separate piece of tape from other multi-track tape and, and, and flown back in.
So this, the original idea of, um, you know, mathematically, it seems straightforward. You apportioned 24 tracks, six each, <laughs> and you each record blind and then put it back together and, and, and see what you've got. I don't think it was quite as... Uh, as clear cut as no, that. No, I mean, looking at that track sheet, you see that the last four tracks are Kevin's kit, yeah, recorded conventionally with a left and right overhead, a, a separate snare, and a, and a separate bass drum. Um, so there's only twenty tracks left, and of course, some of those are, are going to be, you know, taken up with like the lead vocal. There's a few different things on track nine. There, you've got the lead, you've got. A harmony of uh, of a vocal and lead guitar, um, so you know they're they're juggling tracks, aren't they, there, Paul? Uh, yes, the, the the proper lead vocal there is on track nineteen, and then track nine, as Sean says, is a composite track. It has, amongst other things, Eric's harmony vocal. It appears to have Eric's conventional sounding lead guitar. Uh, which uh, is almost identical to the guitar solo that appeared on the Deceptive Benz version. Agreed, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, even with these... Because we don't actually have access, Sean and I, at the moment, to the actual multi-track, we're, we're, we're sort of attempting to reverse engineer and probably yeah, not so getting I'm it. getting our knickers in a bit. We a are a bit, aren't we? But um, yeah. nevertheless... But um, going back to the, the photo of the tape box there, Paul, where it says mysteriously loops yeah. with the word chorus misspelt mm. in brackets after it um, they're terrible spellers aren't they really, i mean they, really poor well i say they i mean it, was it was it was it martin who was uh, was it peter who was writing these track sheets because they're i don't think eric's spelling was up to much to be honest yeah but this isn't in eric's hand and and eric's handwriting to be fair is lovely this uh, you can't see this on the pod but the the, the track split We've seen this lovely writing. That is lovely, neat writing. And that is Eric, I'm pretty sure. This other one is somebody else, and I'm not quite sure who. <laughs> well, it might be Martin. I'm, I've never I've never noticed Martin's uh, spelling. Yeah. But let's move on to, I think, the weirdest element of, of this attempt to, to create this tune. These loops that are from the tape box, um, we believe, were, were produced solo by Lol. And he'd have, I think, had access to the multi-track machine, Paul, and then mixed down these loops uh, so that they could then be inserted into the into the mix of the track. Now, you described, you only heard them for the first time, didn't you, a, a few minutes ago? Yeah. And you described them as the devils I'm not in love. <laughs> That's what they're like. And I, they sound like they've been produced in the same way as, as the I'm Not In Love loops. Right, but with other processing. And yeah. you were saying some sped up, slowed down, uh, futzed with generally to yeah. give quite a... Well, let, let's hear it. Yeah, and um, listen out for the sound of, we presume, lol talking here, but sped up.
and you can hear um, amongst those really high vocals that are unmistakably lull to my, to my ears. Mm. That it's got that lull warble, very very high. But there's really low sounds as well. And exactly like you're saying, Paul, they've, they've definitely been processed in a bizarre, bizarre way. I'm wondering, have they stuck a blob of sellotape or glue or something on the on the tape machine to create that kind of bumpy reel that they used to such wonderful effect on consequences? Or is it put through an effects processor? I'm thinking maybe a Leslie wheel, um, the device that, that particularly Hammond organ players would use to make the sound kind of swirl. Uh, it's mm. a magical sound. A little bit later, I'll argue that I think Kevin has used the Leslie wheel on his on his backing vocals as well. But th this is very, very strange. Another similarity with I'm Not In Love Here, Paul, is that it, you can tell here that LOL, or whoever's mixing these loops, is making some of the loops loud for a moment, then bringing it down, then bringing another another vocal loop up in volume. Um, they're sung at different pitches. Uh, that's a very, very similar technique to I'm Not In Love, where you get a shift in harmony that, that mirrors what Eric's singing in the lead vocal. But they seem much more discordant this time. It, it's almost like, was it rushed or was Lowell deliberately trying to kind of make it discordant and dirty? Mm, good question. I mean, when... Uh... For whatever reason, it didn't it didn't cohere into something fabulous. And I mean, maybe it was uh, maybe this is going a bit far. But was it unintentional sabotage of the track? <laughs> you, maybe that's not too strong. Um, taken in in combination, the effect of these loops, his very weird and yet beguiling clarinet-like um, uh, guitar solo. Uh, which was a, a possible replacement to Eric's conventional guitar solo. And in a minute you'll hear his and Kevin's other backing vocals, some of which are worded, you know, they, yes. they include lyrics in the song, but they sound so weird as to um, take attention away from this straightforward love song yeah. and, and turn it into something completely different. Yeah, um, but I think the jury's out for me, but uh, I wonder if you'll agree with me, folks, that what we hear now, and, and I think that this would be a good point to, to play some of those those weird and wonderful backing vocals, Paul, mm -hmm. they seem like the right ideas, but the wrong song. Mm. They would This kind of approach would have worked so fabulously well on another piece of music, but I think Kevin and Lodge just chose the wrong song and the wrong time to 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 shoehorn in these ideas. Ah, oh, well, that's a really interesting point because they didn't have the right song available, did they? No. I mean, if we leave aside Good Morning Judge, they only had Things We Do For Love and People In Love on the table, two songs which were just so divergent uh, from what Kevin and Lowell wanted to do yeah. that it, they probably couldn't have put their uh, experimental brains uh to use on any of this material that that Eric and Graham seem to be coming up with now. Yeah, and Kevin and Lyle were soon soon going to be coming up with things like Stampede. 
Yeah. But this kind of creativity that we that we'll hear in a second, if 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 that had been used on something like Cool 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 in the morning and, and record that as a ten CC track, you know, mm. that might have worked because there's just something there's there's something more to it. Um, something more interesting. See what you think of these parts, folks. I, I I really like them because they're just so entertaining and so wacky. think all of those strange bbs are kevin's work what do you think yes and that is probably where the theory that lowell did something on his own and plugged it in and kevin did something on his own and plugged it in came from it sounds like the two of them have gone away and and said here you are some interesting ideas there. Uh, it's incredible ideas but it just it just it's too much packed into that track and you've said it it's the wrong song for that yeah. sort of invention i mean I love <coughs> I love counterpoint harmonies. I love the, the call and response that's going on between Eric's lead and, and Kevin's BVs. It doesn't it, sound it, sincere. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't sound like the same guy singing the song. It, the backups sound they're coming from a different place emotionally, you know, uh, musically, every way. It just doesn't work at all. Does no, it? Uh, and it just it just clutters it up, doesn't it? Yeah. But there are some lovely bits that, that like the um, <coughs> that gorgeous deep. Oh yeah, uh, that, that comes in all of a sudden. That sounds like something off Deceptive Bends, actually. Yeah. But I suspect it is Kevin. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and almost everything added there doesn't work in the context <laughs> of people in love. Despite the fact that I love the parts in and of themselves, yeah. mm. there's a another little cameo there that is, is very easy to miss, and that's just a single overdubbed hand clap that yeah. happens on a strange beat in the middle of nowhere and then disappears forever. That may be because it was mixed out by whoever was mixing this to do the yeah you know, the mixed out side. And did you clock just before Kevin does his vocal part, takes a sharp intake of breath, which may have been a quick drag on a, on a joint, just like um, Paul Simon's deliberately recorded introduction to Overs. Oh, OK, right. Okay. Mm. I actually think it's Eric taking a puff on a ciggy, to be honest. I think that's the lead vocal. One of the things I find most interesting about that that particular take, Paul, <clears throat> is that in the middle of the song, 
um, the, the BVs are processed in a really extreme way. I'll go back to what I was saying before about the Leslie wheel effect. Right. Um, it sounds like something from a, a late 60s Beatles album or something by ELO. That kind of, I'll play you a little bit. Okay. Look at the smile in her eyes. I knew I was right in my bones. I feel the turning of wheels as it grows. Yeah, it reminds me of, of, of a sound that you might find on ELO's New World Record or Out of the Blue or something. Mm. Um, heavily, heavily processed. I love it. Um, but God, again, it clashes with the, the tone and the sort of open-heartedness of, of Eric's song. Uh, and, and it's been, it's almost like these overdubs have been done cynically somehow. Yeah, that's, that's the impression you get, uh, yeah, unconsciously maybe, but it, it's just a, a strange vibe in the air. I mean, just looking at the tape box here, Sean, um, we have a date, the 24th of August. Okay. Which is three days after the Nebworth concert. So they must have gone, you know, straight into the studio and recorded this. And, and we know that they, it probably lay fallow for a little bit. And that date of um, Paul McCartney's uh, Buddy Holly party was, yeah. I think, the 7th of September. And yeah. that's when they went back and listened to what they'd done and decided the game's up. Um <laughs> It's, it's sad. A, sad, a sad day for all of us. Yeah, a sad but inevitable day. Yeah. I mean, the, the tension, but the, the four conflicting forces that once had gathered were about <laughs> to, you know, uh, we, we argue about this a lot. You know, 10CC probably couldn't have existed nope. indefinitely and shouldn't have in, existed indefinitely. They couldn't, they just couldn't carry on. No. They were going in, in wildly different directions. Yeah. Uh, the new songs. That were, that were coming through from Eric and Graham just didn't didn't excite them in any way. Mm. Um, I can't imagine Kevin and Lowell recording Good Morning Judge. No, and I know people, maybe even you have, Sean, a few people have put together like uh, an imaginary 10cc <laughs> fifth album with yeah. bits of Consequences and L and Deceptive Bends, but it doesn't really hang together at all, I don't think. No. Uh, they have to come from different artists. Yeah. Agreed. One other pet sound on here, Paul, that I, I wanted to highlight. We heard it um, towards the end of that last amazing sort of Kevin-heavy mix. Yeah. And it's... It sounds like an extra Rhodes, again, distorted. Mm. Maybe put through the Leslie wheel again. There are little bursts of it, aren't there? There is a mono-phased Rhodes oh, on, there we this go. Tr on this track sheet to go along with um, the original stereo Rhodes, which take up two tracks. There's yeah. one next to it, which is probably this overdub, I think. Yeah, and I, and I, and I love those stabs. Yeah. Um, it's a lovely, fat sound. Yeah, it's, it's it's the Rhodes piano is such a historic instrument in 10cc lore, isn't it? Yes. You know, of course, the centerpiece of I'm not in love, but used elsewhere. It's a, it's a key instrument for the band. Yeah. Not talked a lot about Graham's contribution to this track, but as ever, you know, he's the de the dependable one who's a lot busier than than he seems. Uh, there's some gorgeous 
descending bass lines that remind you a little bit of the the, mid, the middle section of I'm Not In Love when Graham does that lovely muted doop 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 he's used that sort of same sound again and he's and he does that doop doop yeah each, each hit actually has two notes on it doesn't it each time he's I guess he's sliding down from note A to note B as part of the same that's right yeah there's a, he, he kind of whips his scoops finger it. upwards scoops. yeah he scoops it yeah great word it, yeah uh, and uh, yeah just really really gorgeous and the sound of his bass is always just so impeccable and uh, there's something really juicy and tasty about it. sort of chorus electric guitar that we heard on the very first take today but he's done some some beautiful acoustic guitar work as well might be a 12 string Paul it, it's it's got a lovely um, a lovely jangly quality uh, oh. it might just be two acoustics overdubbed right but uh, they've been recorded and mixed in, in, in a way presumably Eric's work maybe assisted by Martin uh, they're so bright uh, we got the the low frequencies taken out and the, the high frequencies really boosted. It's a wonderful sound. Uh, we should talk a little bit about what actually happened to the track. Obviously, they uh, they revisited it on Deceptive Bends where it became a single. And in America, at least, it was the third most successful 10cc record ever yeah. after, after I'm Not In Love and Things We Do For Love. Yeah. So the, the word love was obviously a bit of a talisman <laughs> in America. Absolutely. And it's still up there on Spotify. People in love does very well on Spotify. Yes, that's right. Um, and again, we've talked to Graham about this and and uh, he's been asked quite a lot, you know, in the live incarnation of the band recently to include it. But as he told us, it has it brings back some unhappy memories, which isn't surprising because it obviously reminds of the end game of the, of the band. Yeah. Sorry, ladies and gents, if this has seemed like a bit of a, a random rambling uh, through this sort of mysterious tape. And we, we hope we've done it justice. I'm sure there's, there are many aspects of it that we've missed, but uh, we hope you've enjoyed it so far. Um, we're going to come back shortly with another tape that we've been sent, uh, which, again, throws some interesting light on a track that we didn't previously find that interesting. New light through old windows in the jungle, you might Ooh. say. 
see what you did there. <laughs> well, Paul, I really enjoyed that. And uh, here, here we are a few days later pretending uh, to be in the same conversation. It was very s- surreal having you here, Paul. It was, it was marvellous. <laughs> You know, being in the same room. I mean, crikey, when was that? When did that happen last? Um, but we're, we're continuing this pod because it's kind of on a similar theme. After the, the joy of, of uh, people in love in its voodoo state, you've got something else in your back pocket, haven't you, this morning? I do indeed, courtesy of, of, of our mixers again. Um, we're, we're shuffling on a few years, seven years from 1976 to 1983 or at least when this track came up 24 hours Mm. which is probably the the keynote track from uh windows in the jungle Um, which we 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 kind of heaped with faint praise didn't we during our uh a rather labored pod about windows in the jungle paul uh yes it's our favorite track but it's never really shone in my mind, um, it's it's always seemed like slightly less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I agree with that. Although um, a bit like people in love, now we have the privilege of hearing all these elements and and, and a wi- and a window, if you like, into how the track yeah. how the track was made. I, I've got a much better appreciation for it. Um, just let's take a little bit of context about Windows in the Jungle, which I think is interesting do you remember graham told us that um, he uh, they played an album to brian shepherd who was their label boss yeah uh now i don't think it can have been this album because brian shepherd sort of didn't say anything uh and then he just played them private investigations by dire straits yes uh, in other words the unspoken text was no lads this is the direction you should be going in and uh, who knows? That might have resonated because 24 hours uh, represents, I think, what Eric wanted to do, which was to turn 10CC into more of an album act rather than yeah, a, a kind of an AOR thinking man's pop rock kind of thing. Y- yes, and I don't think it's stretching it too far to, to sort of draw a line between what maybe Dire Straits were doing and what Eric particularly was attempting to do here with 24 hours yeah. uh, although uh, whether it was totally successful I don't know but it, it's it's interesting the way that this track works yes yeah, sometimes it strikes me that this album is kind of barking up the same kind of tree that Alan Parsons project does and, and of course Eric had done those lovely tracks with Alan Parsons hadn't he around the same time am I right in thinking not sure was it after I'm, I don't I don't know yeah but it's um you know that kind of gently proggy thing hmm. um where you've got conceptual pieces are on a theme where the instrumentation is interesting that the song structures are interesting and it's attempting kind of to be a concept album and I wondered I wonder if Eric was somehow influenced by Alan Parsons there Mm, yeah quite possibly certainly Eric was the driver of of this overarching concept Graham um, because he's he's told us and and others that he wasn't really into it Uh, and and therefore the result is that Windows in the Jungle is a very Eric heavy and Eric led record isn't it 
It is. Uh, um, and that's arguably not the strongest thing. It, it doesn't show the partnership in, it, in its best light. However, th- this track is, I think it's definitely the best track on the album. It does, it does work as a kind of um, uh, cinescape of uh, the, the city. Um, I wondered what, what, what this city is, because it mentions the capital. Is it supposed to be London? Uh, which would be unusual for 10cc to concentrate on London like that. Is it supposed to be New York? Well, it can't be because it's not the capital of the USA. Or maybe I'm sort of trying to read too much logic into the, the track. Yeah, it's funny. I always consume it as New York. Right. Uh, even though, like you say, that there's not a logical reason for that. Um, but that's what I see in my mind's eye when I listen to the track. Right. It, it, it might not matter. Um, no. But a lot, a lot of thought and and care has gone into the recording of the of this track as it stretches out over several minutes, isn't it? And and these these great mixes that we hear really allow us to shine a light on some of the individual elements. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, maybe we should start at the bottom with with the drums, mm. because the drummer on this track is Steve Gadd, the, the great American drummer who's who known for playing with Paul Simon. Steely Dan. Uh, also around this time, did you know, Sean, that Steve Gadd played on several tracks of Tony Banks's solo album, The Fugitive? Did he now? Yeah, which was recorded right around this time. And uh, we can insert my favourite track from that album called And the Wheels Keep Turning. Yeah, so not an album I've played probably for about thirty years, Paul. Because I, uh, I, uh, it's one of those records where I can't really get past the lead vocal, yeah. Tony. Bless him. Um, uh, it, that was an attempt to, at doing some poppy stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, he was going in the other direction. Interesting. Like Ten CC was yeah. going prog, and he was he was met them on the dual carriageway coming back to. to, to <laughs> I, I must admit, I, I probably assumed that it was Chester again playing playing drums for Tony there. So, blimey. Yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lovely lightness of touch there, isn't there? And it, um, that bit there with the with the, the lovely kind of feathery ride cymbal, it reminds me a little bit of Kevin's playing on the People in Love tapes that we heard earlier, mm. um, where they've they've got a kind of a fairy dust quality to them, which is very very nice. And I, and I like the the extremely gentle way that Steve Gadd is is almost tickling. The drums and they're and they're beautifully recorded, aren't they? They are. And did you notice that the main riff there, the intro, it sounds like a slightly laden version of his famous riff um, from Paul Simon's Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover, of course. Okay. It's almost identical. So he obviously dug that one about out of his back pocket. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I like the way, uh, as well, with Steve Gadd's playing that he he, he adds in some extremely subtle ghost notes. Doesn't yes, he? that's where, right. Where he's kind of he's literally sort of tickling the snare drum. Yeah. Um, 
so you get notes kind of in between the main the main hits so yeah nice um i can't help thinking that his enormous talent is kind of wasted he's not being asked to do much he's playing pretty much a generally ploddy beat uh, and which kind of frustrates me paul i guess you're right there. It doesn't really stretch him. I mean, compare compare that to his playing on Asia by Steely Dan, for example. Yeah. But um, well, he can only play the material, can't he? And the material yes. uh, it doesn't groove really. Um, certainly, twenty four hours doesn't groove. Although you can add, it's not supposed to. But yeah, there's there's not really much for him to to show off. Uh, one wonders what he thought of the session, but um... yeah, absolutely. I, I quite like hearing the um, those footsteps, or loud and clear, those very echoey footsteps, clip clop, clip clop. You know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah, that's right. Um, a sort of harkening back to uh, earlier experiments at Strawberry North, because of course we were at Strawberry North here recording 24 hours. Absolutely, and um, with with Martin on the knobs. And, and of course, we know Martin to be a, a, an exceptional, uh, precise engineer. Um, I think he, he had a knack for producing really, really high quality recordings. I mean, witness consequences. If those foot, the footsteps sound like they're recorded in a big live room, but I'm not sure from the conversations we've had, Paul, with engineers at Strawberry, that it, that it had a live room at all. You remember when we were speaking to Baz mm. that um, in the early 80s, a lot of producers kind of strayed away from Strawberry because they were they were trying to emulate the Phil Collins drum sound for which they needed a, a big live room with with smooth walls, you know, that would that would really reverberate the sound. Whereas Strawberry was a much deader space, yes, um, which is why we always get that wonderful dry drum sound from Strawberry North. Um, yeah, so that that's me geeking out as ever. Yeah, maybe they recorded the footsteps somewhere else. I, yeah, who yeah. knows? hear Steve Gadd in, in that sort of very upfront audio there. Mm. For me, the most interesting of all these mixes, and we've, we've got about eight in total um, that I think were rushed together from the multi-tracks. You can tell that they've been rushed. I mean, in that last clip, we, we heard the kick drum in the left-hand uh, speaker, uh, mm. which is in itself a very unusual thing, the kind of thing that Beatles would have done in the <laughs> 60s. Um, so I, I don't think they really had time to kind of pan or, or, or mix levels particularly. But for me, Paul, the most interesting of all the mixes is number eight, okay. where we don't hear any drums at all. Mm. And I think this is really, really interesting, hearing some really lovely, intricate guitar and bass work from, from Graham, wonderful lead playing from Eric, um, and some interesting touches from things like synths and dobros and things like that. So I'd, I'd like to share just a few moments. So I think that's a synth, Paul, or, or maybe a, an organ note that's been fed through a, a flanger or something. 
It sounds like an actual synth, doesn't it? Yeah. And what's that instrument? It, it's not on a, It's not the Rhodes, is it? It's some kind of other synth, isn't it? There is a synth there, but that's a Rhodes, Paul. Is it? Yeah. There, you hear the Rhodes there. Yeah, okay. And again, yeah, so Graham, Graham with that, just that gorgeous bass sound, always. Yeah. There's uh, our R's that we found on that little bit of tape. Yes, indeed. Which we thought were all Graham. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's That's lovely. Yes. And did you hear how uh, beautifully it was panned from left to right? Oh, I didn't. I'll listen next time. And uh, as ever, a great lead vocal from Eric. Oh, wonderful vocal. Maybe he's lost. I mean, it's, it's a... He's lost just a, t- a smidgen of that incredible sweetness that he had. I only noticed that because, you know, uh, on People in Love, his voice was even better. And this is a, just yeah. a few years later. It's still it's still fantastic singing, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Let's have a listen to the way those harmonics go. That they pan, I think, from left to yeah. right. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the effect on there, the chorus effect on, on those harmonics really mm. blends beautifully with the electric piano. They, mm. they almost become one sound together. It's lovely. Mm. The day into life, newspaper boys cutting the mist like a knife. And here comes the real acoustic piano, I think. Is yes. That right? Acoustic guitar and acoustic piano. Yep. And is is that um, is that Mr. Emerson? I can't remember. No, that's got to be Eric. I'm pretty sure. I don't know for sure, but the, I don't think the playing on any of this track is beyond Eric's. Capability, okay. so I, sus- I suspect it's, it is Eric. Yeah. See, People that's a relatively uh, straightforward combination of acoustic guitar and acoustic piano that you don't always hear. No, true. Vic Emerson is on the album. 
Yeah. Restaurant smells mixing the heat of the day. Telephone bells kiss her gram girls on her way. It just it sounded like Eric's playing. You know on the demo of Lovers Anonymous. Yes. He plays a lot of arpeggios. You know, Eric does, and he's he's good he's good at that and very precise. It just sounded like that kind of playing to me. Could be wrong. Okay. <clears throat> Let's wind forward, Paul. Yeah. Now hear the echo effect there, just like on Feel the Benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Twilight time in the city and the shutters are down. That's when the singles are lost in their doubles. The happy hour comes round to help you unwind in the shadows. Take the tension away. It's been a hell of a day in the city. Now's your time to Again, see this section is good, but it's very conventional. I just, yeah. you know, that that combination of acoustic guitar and keyboard and electric guitar, four man's NCC would have done something very different there. Yeah, we compare it to the middle eight of Mandy or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, unfair maybe, but this is interesting. Kind of a dobro sound from Graham. Yeah. Graham Lee vocal. Yep. Is, is that like a a very polite drug deal going down there? What's, what's oh, definitely. I, th I think I think Phil's a, a drug pusher. Yeah. Right. And there's some nice sort of honky tonk playing there. It doesn't sound like Eric here to me. Oh right. Okay. On the on the keyboard here. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's have a listen. And I, w and I wonder if they just <coughs> fed the fed the piano through some kind of heavy chorus or something to make it sound like a honky-tonk piano. Okay. I feel that there are elements here of the middle section of Feel the Benefit, Paul, you know, where it goes into a an up-tempo section with a Graham lead vocal. Yeah. Uh, and also elements of One Night in Paris as well, where you've got a sense that you're in a in a smoky, in a smoky gin joint. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It does. Um, surrounded, surrounded by wrongens, where the, the whole... The oxygen and the atmosphere changes completely. It does. It doesn't quite have the the sparkle of lyrically. It doesn't quite put you in the same exact space that that maybe Kevin Lowell would manage to. Yeah, I mean, uh, as as we know, Kevin Lowell was so fantastically good at, at swapping scenes, weren't they? Yeah, right. I think that's that might be what's missing there. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's right. That's right. That's right. I say, baby. Is that a word, neonic? <laughs> Not in my dictionary. Darkness with light, the capital beats, feeding the pulse of the I do love those backing vocals, they're great. We'll have a listen to them in a minute. Yeah. Where the 
this where it comes back to the A section, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good change. Yeah, and um, listen out, folks, to Graham's bass playing on this. I think it's lovely. Oh, on the outro, yeah. yeah. Deliberately messy, where he plays the octaves, doesn't he, going down. Yeah. It's like a sort of live feel the benefit. Yeah. But you never really got to hear that, because it's faded out on the, on the track, isn't it? Yeah. That lovely damp sound that he always uses. Yeah. I love how the, you can hear the strings rattling. Yeah. great that end bit isn't it? it is and uh, and for me that mix was uh, far and away the, the most interesting just because it, it really allows us to have a close look at most of the parts on on the record and there's some really wonderful playing It's interesting that Graham's singing most of the BVs on this. I mean, that there is there is the the bit where you can hear Eric coming in just after the middle section. I hear Graham and Eric singing together on this little section. Mm-hmm. He said, "The is a jungle where the strongest survive." But it might be all Graham. And, and and if so, it, that's an interesting dynamic where you've got Eric uh, doing most of the lead vocal throughout the song, and then Graham doing all of the BVs. What 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 are you hearing, Paul? Uh, on that little section we heard there, I'm sure I'm hearing Eric as well. But yeah, yeah. Ge- generally speaking, I think you're right. I mean, that maybe that's an artistic decision. Maybe it's that they were less inclined to sing round a mic together. Yes. Um, um, but and on this section here, this is the. The tape that we baked a few months ago, um, it just said 10cc R's on the box. Um, and it, it's just a, a multi-tracked recording of, I think, Graham singing this gorgeous harmony. Here we go. There you can even hear Steve Gadd's ride cymbals coming through his headphone 
Absolutely, that, um, that it took us a little while to spot when we were baking the tape, um, but now it's 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 obvious. But what's interesting here, Paul, from my point of view, you know, sort of in terms of the the, the engineering geek in me, mm. is that it sounds to me like they ran out of tracks to um, to have you know eight loads of Graham uh, with BVs, and so it's. The fact that these are on a separate tape suggests that Graham recorded those harmonies on the multi-track and then they were mixed down onto quarter-inch tape. Mm -hmm. Now, 1983, um, digital recording existed but was in its infancy. Um, You know, bands like, uh, you know, Dire Straits, for example, were famously uh, recording digitally around that sort of time. Mm -hmm. But... Baz told us that Strawberry didn't have a sampler for ages. Yeah. So I don't think that these BVs were fed into a sampler and then an engineer would have just flicked the, the play button in time with the, the multi-track to then feed the, the, the BVs back into the multi-track. So I think they've been inserted into the track manually in, in the way that Kevin Lowell would have been feeding in the, the sound of water drops and so on. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. They would have been recorded time-wise to a click, so as long as you press the start at the right point, they should fit in, and they do, don't they? They do. They do perfectly. So, I, I, But I bet they had a few runs to get them uh, to, to lay in time yeah. with the track. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, really, really gorgeous. Here on the street Feeling the cool of the dawn Shuffling feet Faces are ragged and worn Yeah, one of the highlights of the track Which, it, it is a good track It's just a little pedestrian compared with what came a few years before I mean, it was a, it was a single, a brave choice for a single, wasn't it? Yes, uh, very much so uh, it just doesn't speak single to me. It doesn't quite have the 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 moving epic quality of Survivor, which is one of its equivalents, I guess, in in terms of eighties ten cc Paul. You know mm. that kind of the grander, longer form song. Yeah. But I think Survivor somehow is more successful as a song. I think the melody and dynamics of it are more dramatic and emotional. Yeah, it's more of a song. This is really bit nice bits and pieces that don't quite stitch together properly, to my mind. Yes, and, and uh, as as I think we said at length before, a collection of of observations about city life that don't that don't really scratch beneath the surface. You can say restaurant smells, but um, it's not poetry. It's kind of just quite prosaic uh, descriptions that that really don't go very deep. So I think this had potential to be really a a very, very good track. Um, But I don't know, it's just lacking in inspiration. Yeah, a little bit. Still still probably the best track on the record though. Agreed, agreed. People try and pressurise and hook and hustle your muscle it's all part of living do you want to get away everyone i hope you've enjoyed uh, 
hearing beneath the surface of, of these two interesting creations. Uh, and we promise to bring you more um, as and when they arrive. <laughs> We'd just like to say again, thank you so, so much to the, the skilled and, and passionate people who produced these tapes um, some years ago now. Uh, but thank you for stealing into the studio and, uh, and grabbing these recordings. It's been absolutely invaluable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Where the rhythm's so strong and the music is playing so loud. Where the rhythm's so strong and the music is playing so been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening